Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The way a candidate for president announces their campaign doesn't usually matter all that much. But some announcements have a way of sticking in your head. There's Amy Klobuchar, who announced her 2020 bid for president in a driving snowstorm. Or Donald Trump, who rode a golden escalator to his campaign launch in 2015. Add to that list the official start of Ron DeSantis's presidential run, which was supposed to be broadcast live on Twitter Spaces, an audio streaming service, Wednesday night. And it kind of was. Now it's quiet. But it did not go smoothly. You could hear the screeching sound of feedback. People's streams suddenly cut off mid-sentence. All right, sorry about that. We, we've we got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers, uh, which is a good sign. Um, it took nearly a half hour for DeSantis himself to get on the mic and declare he was running for president. By then, hundreds of thousands of listeners seemed to have stopped tuning in. Molly Ball from Time Magazine, she's here to assure you that a wacky stunt like this is just the beginning. In the 2024 presidential race, there are going to be more candidates, more oddball announcements, more weird fails. There's plenty of time. I mean, it's 2023, and this presidential uh, election will occur in 2024. So just in terms of months on the calendar, right, the first debate is not going to happen until August. It's clear that there's there's a lot that can still happen. But Molly also wants you to know that you should not count Ron DeSantis out. Not yet, anyway. Because Republicans certainly aren't. He's clearly the the principal obstacle to Trump just sort of gliding to the nomination at this point. But how much of an obstacle is he going to be, right? Is he going to be more of a speed bump? Uh, that's sort of how it's looked for the past couple months as Trump has gained ground. But everyone's really waiting for DeSantis to get in and see if he can be uh, the Trump slayer, for lack of a better term. It's so interesting because it sounds like even when you're talking about Ron DeSantis and his candidacy, his candidacy is still all about Trump, like whether he can beat Trump, like Trump is the main character here. Of course he is. Trump has a a way of making himself the main character of sort of any situation he's in. DeSantis has mostly tried to emphasize his policy record and his own credentials. And the question is, will that be enough or will he have to take Trump on more forcefully? But but that wouldn't necessarily be his preference just because uh, everyone else who's tried it over the course of the last eight years has ended up worse off. Today on the show, Ron DeSantis may have stumbled to the starting block, but his record shows why this inauspicious launch may not mean very much about where his campaign ends up. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I think a lot of political observers really began to take notice of DeSantis as like a serious presidential contender around the midterm elections. Can you explain what happened then that made so many people go, huh, okay, maybe this is happening? Yeah, I mean, think if you think about Florida, right, going back to, to Bush v. Gore, I think we've always thought of Florida as the biggest and most emblematic American swing state, right? It's the third most popular state in the country, a big, diverse state with a lot of different constituencies. And so I think what that means is, First of all, if you're able to win convincingly in Florida, that gets you a look as someone who's really accomplished something politically. And he won very convincingly, like by 19 points. Very convincingly, the biggest win uh, for any Florida governor in a decade. And he had won by only half a percentage point when he first got elected governor back in 2018. So he really built on uh, that early sort of precarious success uh, to make this much more resounding statement. And remember, I think it was amplified by the fact that in a lot of ways, 2022 was a disappointing election for Republicans nationally. There was a lot of anticipation of of some sort of red wave, and it turned out to be more of a ripple. And a lot of Republicans in other states uh, didn't do as well as they were expecting. And in the early days, a lot of those people blamed Trump. I don't know if that's so much the case now, but at least at the time, people thought, huh, Trump endorsed these people. It didn't necessarily work out. That's right. And and DeSantis is someone who, you know, Trump did endorse back in 2018, but in the past few years as he started to seem like more of a potential threat to Trump, Trump has become less fond of him and uh, they were a bit more distant in 2022. And so that contrast, you know, I think was very good for DeSantis and bad for Trump. You had, you know, DeSantis on election night looking like a big, big winner. Not only did he win by 19 points, but Republicans swept the field in Florida uh, won super majorities in both houses of the state legislature, won every statewide contest, uh, won four new Republican seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. You can argue uh, that Florida is more or less single-handedly responsible for the fact that Republicans have a majority in the House today. Uh, so this big win uh, for DeSantis in Florida on election night. And then a week later, you had Trump making his presidential announcement looking very sort of dejected and low energy with this narrative forming uh, that he was the engine of the Republican Party having lost three elections in a row, 2022, 2020, 2018. There's a really strong case to be made that Trump was a drag on the party in all three of those elections and responsible for Republicans' disappointing performance. Uh, so that was a very good contrast for DeSantis. And I think he expected that he could sort of ride that through the successful legislative session and that would be sort of his presidential platform. I think that's still the plan. It just uh, looks a little different now. Yeah. I mean, you looked at DeSantis's rise in politics to try to understand how he'd moved so quickly to the center of the American political conversation. What did you find when you did that? Like, how has he risen so quickly? He, he was a congressman and then before he ran for governor. So how did he assemble the team that got him where he is now? 
Yeah, well, uh, if you uh, read his uh, account of it, it's not much of a team effort. He really doesn't give credit to, to anyone besides himself. But he really started out as a part of the Tea Party wave, going back to 2010, when that anti-Obama backlash started to build. Uh, he was just a, a, a young lawyer and a Navy veteran in the Jacksonville area uh, who started to think he could run for Congress. So it was a crowded Republican primary. He had self-published this, this book of conservative ideas. The book was kind of a troll of Obama, right? It was dreams from our founding fathers as opposed to dreams from my father. Right. If you think back to the that era of the Tea Party, there was a lot of that sort of like, you know, Obama hates America, but we love America. And therefore, that's the contrast. And so he, he you know, with his credentials, with his ability to sort of impress uh, Republican base voters, and particularly those sort of Tea Party voters. Uh, his record as a veteran, I think, was a big asset. He was able to win that primary by a pretty wide margin. I was impressed with how from the beginning, DeSantis was kind of working all of the angles to his advantage. Like when he ran for Congress, his wife, Casey, was in TV news. She was an anchor. And you mentioned how she switched her name to her married name. So all of a sudden you're hearing DeSantis all the time on the TV news. And then she went door to door with him, which is just kind of interesting. It's like I hadn't thought about that, but it's this way to kind of shine the spotlight on yourself without, you know, doing the traditional stuff of ads or whatever. Just get your name in the atmosphere. Absolutely. I mean, that's always the biggest obstacle to any first time candidate is just name ID, just getting people to know who you are and have some sense of why you're in the race. So have, being married to a local celebrity certainly helps. And then uh, another aspect of that campaign that that I reported on was that they gambled by spending basically the entire budget of the campaign when you know they didn't have a lot of money on an ad on Fox News, knowing or betting that that was the way uh, that they could get on the radar of local Republican voters. I've taken an oath to the Constitution. I've served in Iraq, prosecuted criminals, and I'm still in the Navy Reserve. I take my and it worked. Seriously. How did he decide to run for governor? Again, he was sort of an insurgent. Again, he was not the choice of the establishment. There was a, a man named Adam Putnam, who was the state agriculture commissioner at the time. That's uh, one of the statewide offices in Florida. So he was well known and well liked and well supported by the sort of donor class. But uh, DeSantis saw that the you know the way the party was going this is at the time when it was really being remade into Trump's Republican party but that was still sort of a live ball uh, and so DeSantis and his allies convinced Trump that Putnam was basically a never Trumper based on things that Putnam had said you know during and after uh, Trump's original run for president yeah you said Matt Gates encouraged Trump to endorse. DeSantis. That's right. There's this famous uh, flight on Air Force One where uh, Gates and DeSantis are hitching a ride with Trump uh, to a Trump rally in Pensacola in uh, late 2017. A couple of people who were on that plane described it to me as, as Gates having basically a printout of all of the negative things that Adam Putnam had ever said about Trump. And he hmm. just went up to Trump and said, you know, here, here, here and here, this guy, you know, you can't trust him. Trump, a couple of weeks later, he, he saw DeSantis defending him on Fox News yet again and issued a, a, a tweet praising him and the rest is history. Governor DeSantis's story, if you look at it, it's it's pretty clear how lashing himself to Trump was beneficial to him in this gubernatorial race. Like he also released an ad in which he sat with his kids and read The Art of the Deal. 
Ron loves playing with the kids. Build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. He basically like positioned himself as the Trumpiest candidate and, and just slathered attention and compliments on Trump. But you've said that DeSantis himself doesn't attribute his success to Trump. Why is that? Well, I think for one thing, it's become Trump's main attack on him, that he owes his career to Trump, that Trump made him, that he would be nothing without Trump, that right he, would, he was just this sort of insignificant political figure who Trump elevated. Uh, so it's obviously in DeSantis's interest uh, to portray himself as as having a little bit as being a little bit more more self made than that. But I also spoke to you know advisors and former advisors of his who said he has a real sense of of destiny about him that his course in life is sort of foreordained and that he's where God wants him to be at all times. So I quoted a, a former advisor to him saying, you know, I'm sure he thinks it, it was it was nice of Trump to help me do this, but but I would have gotten here anyway. How did Ron DeSantis change the governorship once he assumed that position? Yeah, you know, DeSantis came in and very intentionally wanted to figure out where the levers of power were and how he could put maximum pressure on them. He tells the story in his book. I've talked to people who were there at the time, his sort of uh, advisors and staff who said when he was transitioning into the governorship, having won by the slightest of margins, you know, 30,000 out of 8 million votes, he said to the people around him, and and keep in mind, you know, right, he's a Harvard trained lawyer. So this is a sort of uh, wonkish and and, and, and intellectual person um, who said, tell me everything I can do. I want to know all the powers of the governorship, not just, you know, the ability to sort of propose and advocate for legislation or execute the laws that the legislature hands down, but all of the different powers of the governorship. Yeah. And we should tick off some of the things that DeSantis has done because, there have been so many of them that I feel like it's easy to just have them get lost. Like there was last year, he was very involved in gerrymandering in the state, making sure that there were enough Republican Congress people from Florida to make an impact in Washington. You know, he he even changed the rules so that as governor, he could run for president. Like he's just he's changing all of these rules along the way that benefit him. That's right. I mean, the redistricting battle is really a case study in how aggressive his approach to these things is. There is a a voter approved uh, constitutional amendment in Florida that redistricting has to be nonpartisan. And there in the past, you know, when the legislature proposed and approved maps that sort of pushed the envelope and tried to gerrymander the state, the courts have slapped them down. So understanding that the legislature last year proposed a map that was pretty neutral, pretty balanced, uh, pretty nonpartisan, didn't really change uh, the potential partisan makeup of the state's congressional delegation. And DeSantis came in and said, that's not good enough. Now, previously, governors have been very hands off in this. All they've done is sort of sign the bill. But again, he identified that technically he had the power uh, to be a part of this process. No governor in Florida history had ever done this before. He proposed his own map. He vetoed the map sent up by the legislature. And, and this really sent a shock to the system. It was a, it sent shockwaves through the legislative building in Tallahassee that any governor would do this because it had just never been done before. But what he said was, well, look, the law gives me a role in this process. It says that I have to approve the maps. I don't like your maps, so I want you to take a look at mine. DeSantis clearly sees what he's doing as something that could be nationalized, go to other states. He calls it the Florida blueprint. 
and you've chronicled the way he he's brought conservative leaders to Florida to learn from his approach. And all this is interesting to me because I feel like back in November when DeSantis won re-election, there was some talk among Republicans that DeSantis was like Trump light. Like if, if Trumpism is like too much for you or Trump himself is too much for you, DeSantis is an option. But I wonder if your reporting made you see things a little bit differently. Like, is it Trump light or is it Trump plus? Well, it depends what part of Trump you're talking about. If, if you think back to when Trump was president and there was constantly palace intrigue and feuding advisors and these stories out of the administration where, you know, people were sort of knifing each other on background, you don't get any of that with DeSantis. Nobody thinks that DeSantis is is going to, you know, get indicted or have an affair with a porn star or, or do any of uh, these sort of scandalous things that Trump is constantly embroiled in. On the other hand, if what you mean by that is just Trump's approach to policy, being willing to, to push uh, particularly the culture war in a particularly extreme direction, in that sense, I think you could really say that DeSantis has been the leader and Trump has been the follower. You look back at, at what uh, some people might consider the accomplishments of the Trump presidency, right? His big tax cut that he passed or the vaccine development through Operation Warp Speed. He doesn't talk about that on the stump these days when he's not sort of whining about being victimized by prosecutors and and the Democrats or whatever. Uh, He's talking about a lot of these same culture war themes that I think you can argue that uh, DeSantis uh, really pioneered. We'll be back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One of the first signs that things wouldn't be entirely rosy for Ron DeSantis, the presidential candidate, came this spring. DeSantis went to Washington. He wanted to recruit congressional support for his presidential bid. What happened when he did that? (laughs) Yeah, it didn't go very well. Uh, (laughs) Thinking back on, you know, the early days of, of, of Trump being in politics, he always used to say he was a counterpuncher. Right. That Hmm. he never he never attacked anyone first. But when people attacked him, he was going to hit them back twice as hard. That's sort of gone out the window with DeSantis. Right. Before DeSantis did anything to Trump except sort of become an implicit threat. Uh, But without him having attacked Trump in any way, 
Trump has decided that, you know, DeSantis's disloyalty requires that he be eliminated. So it's clear who Trump views as a threat. And he and his political operation have gone into overdrive trying to bruise DeSantis in any way possible with, with quite a bit of success. The other thing that you hear is that, you know, the sort of principal liability about DeSantis, and this is certainly a narrative that Trump has tried to drive is that he's an introvert. He's not someone who who loves to glad hand. His strength as a politician is not that he's a people person. Yeah, other congressmen have talked about like, oh, he goes home to FaceTime with his family. He doesn't go out to dinner and, and Washington thrives on dinners with your colleagues. That's right. He really seems like the type of person who is fatigued or drained by having to spend a lot of time around other people. And you can tell sometimes that he's just not having fun. That's such a good way to put it. I think that's so true that when people look at their political candidates, they just want to see them enjoying it. Like, that's right. <laughs> it's this element that people don't talk about as much, but it's it's a huge part of the success of a candidate. And Trump does look like he's having fun when he's campaigning. He's saying noxious things, but he's having a great time. He does. Although it's funny that, you know, Trump and his people love to attack DeSantis for being uncomfortable doing retail politics. That was not something Donald Trump did until very recently, right? I remember back in 2015, he would go to Iowa and New Hampshire and give speeches and not shake any hands, not go to any diners, not eat any ice cream or do any of those things. And it certainly didn't hurt him at all back then. But he's doing it now in order to draw this contrast with DeSantis, in order to make the argument that, you know, DeSantis is not good at this and is uncomfortable in these situations. And there's clearly an element of truth to that. What do the polls show now? about where DeSantis is? 30 points, 40 points, 50 points. He's way, way, way behind. And that's different than it looked, you know, six months ago, right after the election. There were polls showing him ahead of Trump nationally or in some states uh, with Republican primary voters. So to me, the fact that he was ever there shows that there's an openness, right? It shows that there is a group of Republican voters who are willing to consider an alternative to Trump. But the fact that they've closed ranks so quickly and that Trump has been able to reconsolidate them so successfully also shows that it's it's a big task. It's going to be really hard to do and it may or may not be possible. There are a lot of other people in this Republican presidential primary, either officially or unofficially. You've got Nikki Haley from South Carolina, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, a businessman named Vivek Ramaswamy, Senator Tim Scott. Mike Pence is in the wings, potentially jumping in. How does this compare to previous presidential slates you've covered? Yeah, having covered the past few presidential elections, this feels like a really small field to me. Interesting. (laughs) Remember, we had, what, 17 Democratic candidates on stage in 2020. And back in 2016, the Republican field was in the 20s, depending on how you counted the candidates. So, you know, Trump, again, has been openly encouraging more candidates to get in the race on the theory that it helps him because he doesn't necessarily have a majority of the Republican vote in some of these states. So the more he can sort of splinter the field, the more he can prevent one person from being the alternative to him, the more he he seems to benefit. And the fact that so many candidates now seem to be circling and looking at the race and potentially getting in, people like a, a Chris Christie, a Glenn Youngkin, a lot of candidates nationally purported to be looking at this race, that is a reflection of DeSantis's weakness so far. There's a sense that, you know, he had a chance to emerge as the odds-on favorite to beat Trump. He didn't do it. He's starting out at a disadvantage. He's got a formidable task ahead, and maybe that creates an opening for someone else. Is the truth that someone like Ron DeSantis or really any of these other candidates 
they're basically running to be your backup date to prom. Like if if Trump is indicted, if Trump is tied up with court cases, criminal cases, we have other options. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly part of it. I mean, nobody will admit that they're running as a backup or or to or running for vice president, as sometimes gets said. All of these people, I think, want to be president of the United States. Uh, But it has been the case since he entered politics in 2015, that Trump has been sort of the immovable object in Republican politics. You know, I thought a lot about sort of the differences uh, between DeSantis and Trump and sort of looking at their their personalities. You see that, you know, Trump has this very high tolerance for chaos. He almost seems to to relish it. DeSantis, you, you can see, is someone who really values control. He really likes to be in control of everything around him. He really likes to have a sort of roadmap. When he has a task to execute, he's able to execute it very well. So he's almost always been in situations where he could sort of figure out what to do. And now he's in uncharted territory because it is a very chaotic and fluid situation. And there is no roadmap. There's no one who can tell you sort of what the formula is for winning this race. Molly Ball, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really grateful. Thanks so much for having me. Molly Ball is a national political correspondent over at Time Magazine. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter, just not Twitter spaces. I'm at Mary's desk. I'm handing things off to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew. I will be back in this feed on Monday. Catch you then. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.